0: Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents... The Tales of the Justice Society of America! America!
1: Welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Scott Gardner and I am joined as always by my very good friend Michael Bailey. Hey Scott. How's it going man? It's going okay. How are you? I'm doing great. I am really, really doing well. Uh, did I say the episode number after all that preamble talk that they haven't heard about what episode number is this? And then I don't think I said what episode number it was. <laughs> this should be number 83, by the way, which
2: is the right episode number. Not unlike, unlike, uh, Apparently, a previous episode
1: that somebody was giving us crap about on Facebook. Yeah, I saw that. You know, it it occurs to me. I've actually done that several times uh, in the in the history, at least of this show. I don't know if I've done it in other Two True Freaks related shows, but I know in in Tales, I have frequently done it when I didn't know what the episode number is. I would just throw out a number. And it's funny that it, that somebody called me on it because, you know, listening back through the episodes, there were a couple of times where I caught myself going, wait, what did I just say this was? <laughs> you know, because I've been trying to listen to him in episode order, so that's, that's funny. I actually tripped myself up with that gag as well. Uh, let's see. I... I don't know about you. I really got nothing whatsoever for preamble, and we have plenty of stuff to get to for uh, for this particular episode. Did you have any preamble stuff before we no, jump right into No, not at her? all.
2: Not at all. Uh, we got we got emails, and we got comics, and we got a boatload of crisis management to talk
1: about. Yes, we do, and I'm really itching to talk about some of those books. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and jump straight into our email segment then. And uh, Mike, you have got the first email
2: this is from Chris Smith uh, it says JSA forever JSA is my favorite superhero team but I've yet to read anything yet but I plan to I've been watching all the old episodes in order but I won't criticize those episodes due to the difference in t- difference in time my opinion I prefer the JSA on Earth 1 his favorite member is Wildcat and his favorite runs are the miniseries from 1991 the short lived 10 issue series and the JSA 1999 series
1: Excellent, excellent. That was uh, short and sweet, Chris. Right in. Tell us more about yourself. And we, we will would... be covering all of
2: those.
1: Yes, yes, we will. Or favorite member is Wildcat, huh? Hmm. All right. I like, like Wildcat. Wildcat. What's that? Who doesn't like Wildcat? I like Wildcat. I, I think I think he's a. You know, I, I don't know if a, if a while back I, I would have necessarily been all that enthused you know and say ah, I like Wildcat, but. Um, It was actually that latter series uh, that kind of gave me a new respect for Wildcat. I really liked him in that, especially the story with the new Crimson Avenger and everything. I I really liked that, where it kind of shaded him in a little bit more as a character, I thought. enjoyed that quite a bit. I don't know if you know the, the story I'm talking about or not. I
2: think I do. I remember it.
1: All right, let's see. I have got the next one here. And the next one is from good longtime friend of the show, David A. Pascarella. And this one is called The Return of Tales. He says, Hi, Scott and Michael. He says, The Return of Tales of the JSA is absolutely the most welcome news I have had to date in 2014. <laughs> wow. I don't know if that's a huge compliment or he's just having a really boring year so far. I'm not, I'm not really <laughs> sure how to take that, but... Uh, Since I listen to podcasts at work and when I'm driving, so I manage to stay pretty current with the shows I listen to. Usually I listen to a podcast once, but Tales of the JSA has staying power. To fill the numerous hours that would otherwise be podcast-free, I turn to my Tales of the JSA file and re-listen to the old favorites. This show is like the honeymooners of podcasts. Every show is great and always gives me a laugh. Wow, that... That is high praise. I, yeah, I appreciate that very much. Uh, I, I hold the honeymooners in incredibly high regard as a TV show. So thank you. I, I'm i uh, flattered by that comparison. Since I discovered the JSA in the early 1980s in the pages of Justice League of America and was a fan of the whole multiple Earths concept. However, due to the lack of a comic book store near me and limited resources, I had never bought or read any of the material you have thus far covered. The introduction of tales caused me to remedy that tragic mistake. Since the show started, I have acquired the entire run of All-Star Squadron and Infinity Inc., as well as several issues of All-Star Comics and Adventure Comics. Reading-wise, I'm slightly ahead of the show and looking forward to every episode. Wow. Thank you for bringing back a great show and helping me get through many, many long days at work. All the best, and that's from David A. Pascarella in Staten Island, New York. And uh, I, I just want to say again—I I think I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. David is a hell of a nice guy. Uh, he was just here recently. Uh, here being, uh, you know, Walt Disney World, uh, he came down with his family for uh, for a while, and I got to meet up with him. And I had met him. Uh, Previously, he reminded me that it was two years ago. I was like, holy cow, has it really been that long? But, yeah, it had. Uh, But uh, I got to meet up with him. Sadly, it was very briefly. I wanted to spend more time. We were kind of hoping to to maybe get to hang out for a day. and My schedule just didn't permit. But we got to hang out for for a little while, and uh, it was just really great to see him. Dude never ages either, which... uh, I'm very jealous. He he looked completely, uh, completely the same as last time. I was like, "Wow, you haven't put on any weight, you know? You you, you haven't aged. You looked you looked really good." But he's a really great guy, and uh, I saw where he recently acquired a copy of uh, Superman versus Wonder Woman after we talked about it on the show. So we are slowly making him go broke. Which
2: <laughs> yeah, sadly, enough. I cannot find my Superman versus Shazam now. I don't know where it went. Really somewhere in this house but I don't know it should be right around where I am and I'm kind of getting nervous now you had it when we were recording right yeah I had it when we were
1: recording Uh, it's got to be around but uh
2: yes and thanks to uh, thanks to J. David Weeder, I now have the final piece of that puzzle with the Incredible Hulk versus Batman so.
1: That's awesome. I wish. See, I wish I had known that you didn't have a copy of that because I, I actually I still have a spare. Now that said, it's in horrible condition, but I, I do have a spare copy of that. Is it a WTS? Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> now,
2: David's been there from. Pretty much, almost the beginning. So it's it's always great getting emails from him and Absolutely. people like uh, Jose Rivera. Hey, a segue <laughs> <laughs> You'd almost to quote Andy Leyland, You would think we were professionals. Uh, when it's obvious that we are not no thanks thanks for writing Dave and we're gonna move on to the next one which is the Superman Wonder Woman episode that you were talking about mm mm-hmm. uh, from Jose A. Rivera hey guys I just finished listening to the episode covering the Superman Wonder Woman Treasury Edition I loved it for years I heard about the story but I never actually read it now did you love the episode or the story hmm not Here, anyways. Uh, the fact that it hasn't been reprinted before added to its mystique. The funny thing is, right before this episode came out, I found a copy. My birthday this year coincided with a one-day comic show downtown at a hotel. As a present to myself, got myself a ticket because, hey, when can you say you went to a mini-convention on your birthday? For me, that's rare. It's a small show... They didn't have a hell of a lot, but there was a table that had a lot of Treasury Editions. They were three for $15. (sighs) So they decided to look through it, aside from the numerous Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Jesus Treasury Edition. (laughs) I found Superman vs. Wonder Woman, Superman vs. Shazam, and more Secret Origin of supervillains. Not bad for $15. But the first one I read was Superman Wonder Woman because it was an Earth 2 tale and it had Baron Blitzkrieg i uh i i i i think i speak for scott when i say you
1: bastard yes uh i would like to echo that sentiment because uh i just i i really just have one question for jose did you lose my phone number or something dude (laughs) three for 15 bucks seriously and you couldn't give a brother a call what what what's that shit all about
2: we would have we PayPal'd you some money. Come I'm on. serious, dude. <laughs> Three for
1: 15 bucks is a steal on those treasury-sized books. Wow, yeah. you you made out like a bandit, my friend.
2: I mean, I feel pretty lucky that back in 98, I got the second Superman versus a Spider-Man one for 10. Wow. I feel like that was a pretty good deal. Uh, so, you know, you don't usually find them for anything less than 20, 25 these days. Right, They're worth it, I mean, because, you know, the age and the fact that there's probably not a whole lot of copies left.
1: The the big problem with them is I I don't know anything about the print runs on those books, but the ones that are still in existence, it seems like they're just not in very good shape because they don't age gracefully, those books. They're hard as hell to store and take care of is the problem with them. And I mean, I feel like I have treated the, the copies I have with kid gloves all these years and just the simple fact that I've moved like 800 times in my life They've just gotten beaten up. So I've been looking to replace key books here and there, and you can't find certain ones for cheap, like Superman and Wonder Woman. I've been scouring eBay on that one since we started talking about doing it just because I'd like a nicer copy than the one that I have. And I can't put a hand to it for for what I consider a reasonable price. Everything I'm seeing on it is crazy expensive. So the fact that you got it for 5 bucks. Yeah, um, I'm kind of hating you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Nice.
2: Um, uh, His email continues, I read it as I was listening to the episode and was just a little disappointed that it wasn't entirely an Earth 2 story. Having the Daily Planet, Perry White, not seeing the Earth 2 Superman S was a little jarring at first and that he really wanted to beat the hell out of Wonder Woman when she hit him, but I still liked the story. Plus, the treasury size was pretty cool. Glad to know the story will be reprinted in a hardcover, and I hope we get more reprints. That's all I have for now, but I'm glad the show is back and that we get special episodes like this. Thanks, and keep up the good
1: work. Jose A. Rivera. Thank you, Jose. Real quick, before we move on, you know, we were talking about, you know, the fact that uh, that David and Jose have been around with us a long, long time. I, I think they've been there right from the very beginning and uh again, you know listening to back episodes and everything, there's a name that kept coming up time and time and time again in those older episodes that I don't know about you, but I have not seen come up again since we've come back from this latest hiatus that we had uh and that was Stan Johnston, so uh, Stan, if you're listening, buddy, shoot us a line, let us know that you're still out there, and uh if and we don't DM you don't hear from that's- yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh
2: so, yeah! If you guys, if you guys are still listening, let us know. We'd like to know. We really
1: would. Absolutely.
2: We need affirmations.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that was a, that was a lengthy hiatus. So maybe they're just not aware that we're back. So, anybody listening, if you know those guys and uh, they're not aware that we're back, shoot them a line. Let us, you know, just let them know that we're we're still around. But with that, I think that takes us to pretty much our. Uh, Our first book, right?
2: Yes, and we are going back to September 27th, 1984, with All-Star Squadron, number 39, Nobody Gets Out of Paradise Valley Alive. Credits on this bad boy are Roy Thomas, writer-editor, Rick Hoberg, and Bill Collins. Uh, Artists, uh, didn't they do... uh, Easy Lover? No, that was uh, Phil Collins and, and that Bailey guy. Sorry. I always get those the, the, the things confused. I apologize. Um, Gene D'Angelo, the colorist. Cody for the letterer. And the quote for this issue is Detroit can either blow up Hitler or it can blow up the U.S. And that's from Life Magazine uh, 1942. Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Robot Man, Firebrand, and Hour Man enter an all-night diner because if you want information at 5 in the morning, that's where you go. You know, around here we have Waffle Houses open up at 5 in the morning, and you're not going to find anything there, except maybe some good coffee. I don't know. I really miss the 40s. Any, like I lived there. The cook, is anything <laughs> but, the cook is anything but helpful and a little insulting to boot, just as the All-Stars are about to leave without the address they were looking for and I almost wrote the droids they were looking for, but I decided against it, Firebrand finds a racially insensitive notice urging all white men to rally at Nevada and Finland. Johnny asks the patrons if they can give directions, and when that doesn't work, Firebrand torches the notice to get their attention. One of the patrons grabs her wrist and threatens her and the rest of the All-Stars, and before Firebrand can take care of the situation, Robot Man steps in. He does some wrist grabbing of his own and gets the man to tell them how to get to Nevada and Finland, pretty much proving that this guy was a moron to begin with. I mean, do you really want to attack somebody that can spontaneously cause something to light on fire? I mean, seriously. The altercation leads to everyone uh, the altercation leads everyone to leave and on their way out, the man that grabbed firebrand calls them A very insensitive name, leading to a not-so-veiled threat from our man about the future of the man's dental care. Before the All-Stars leave, the cook tells them to get out, stay out, because he has the right to refuse service to anyone. Johnny sees this as a challenge and tells the cook that he'll be back before they leave town for a cup of coffee. Black. Black. Outside, the All-Stars realize that they can't find Amazing Man and check out that rally at the same time, so the group splits up. Robot Man, Firebrand, and Our Man arrive at the rally, with Firebrand giving Our Man a quick history lesson about how hundreds of people, black and white, mainly from the South, have headed to Detroit for work. Most of the Negroes live in an area called Paradise Valley, and most of the white people would prefer they stay there. At the rally, the Emperor of the Phantom Empire rallies his people together before introducing the Real American. The Real American, in addition to proving he was a member of Megaforce, deeds not words, inflames the crowd by ranting and raving (laughs) and asking if they are going to let the federal bureaucrats force 18 acres of Negroes down their throats. And folks, I apologize if anybody is offended by the term Negro. This is actually the term in the comic. So this is... I'm kind of just rehashing what's in the book. So uh, we're not here to offend anybody yet. Uh, When the crowd agrees with him, we learn that every real American action figure comes with a lash made of pliable steel. One of the people in the crowd speaks out against what they plan to do and is dragged on stage, proving how powerful the real American really is. After some more hateful and bigoted tirades, Hourman Man and Firebrand talk about how they like to jump in there, but Robot Man points out that while they may disagree with what is being said, the crowd and the real American have a right to say anything they want as lo- not long as no one acts on it. Even though the Phantom Empire must stand on the sidelines, the real American doesn't. He leaves with a crowd of people following him. The All-Stars follow, but not before Firebrand reduces the Flaming Cross to a smoldering pile of wood. Meanwhile, Johnny and Libby have headed to Paradise Valley to find Amazing Man. Instead of finding the costumed hero, they find his fiancée, Rachel, and Will Everett's mother. Will's mother is concerned for her husband and her son, while Rachel is upset that they are trying to move in the first place, as those that are opposed to the housing will kill them before letting them live there. Johnny and Libby try to argue and even bring up the president, but Rachel finds all of it dubious, as the last time the president got involved in something like this, nothing changed. Libby tries to point out that with a war on and not a whole lot, that not a whole lot can be done, leading Rachel to ask, what good is defeating Hitler when there are gangs like the Klan and the Phantom Empire right here at home? She goes on a bit more about how white people in the U.S. want to keep all of her kind in one Paradise Valley or another. Johnny tries to argue, but Libby says it's time to go and promises they will keep Will and his father safe or die trying. And by die trying, they mean let both of them get arrested, but we'll get into that in a minute. Later, at 9.30 as a matter of fact, Libby and Johnny are in their civilian identities covering the standoff between the blacks and the whites outside the Sojourner Truth Project. There are some not-so-veiled threats from the crowd that they should cover the events quote-unquote right and Libby even gets into it with one of the lawn lookers. Meanwhile, Will's father tries to drive through the lines in a moving truck and is hit in the face with a brick for his trouble. The crowd opens the back of the truck to find Amazing Man standing there in full costume. Another brick is hurled, which only serves to give Amazing Man something to grab and assume the properties of, and soon he is leaping into the crowd and beating the hell out of anyone that gets in his way. Libby and Johnny change into their uniforms to help stop the riot, and soon Our Man, Robot Man, and Firebrand do the same. As Libby calls from some strategy, the real American shows up and calls for the whites to clean up their city once and for all. Firebrand notices something strange about the American's voice, as does Amazing Man, but that doesn't stop him from taking the ho- hooded pseudo-hero on. The American gets a good shot in and knocks Amazing Man to the ground. This allows Amazing Man to touch a manhole cover and, quote-unquote, armor up. Even with the metal covering, the real American is able to bring Amazing Man to his knees once more, followed by throwing him into the crowd. Libby and Johnny try to convince him to stop fighting, but Amazing Man is intent on beating the hell out of the real American, so much so that he is willing to paste Johnny one to get him out of the way. This momentary distraction allows two police officers to knock him out and take him into custody. Another man in custody wishes to speak to the All-Stars. It's Will's father, and he insists that his son did nothing wrong. Liberty Bell, momentarily forgetting the fact that the crowd threw a brick at this guy, and at Will, before he started kicking ass and taking name, insists that they will do what they can, but Will did break the law. Will's father tells her that they tried to do, try doing this peacefully. Next time, they will do it the other way. The All-Stars can do nothing but watch both sides leave, one group thinking their troubles are over, and they have won the day, and the other one crawling away to lick their wounds and fight another day. In Washington, D.C., Green Lantern and Hawkman report to President Roosevelt about the fight with Captain Marvel. When that is finished, Green Lantern asks the president if he can do anything about the race riots in Detroit. Roosevelt refuses, saying his hands are tied. His concerns lie with the war. The Detroit thing is a local matter. The president changes the subject, leading Green Lantern to say it's time to leave. He asks Hawkman if he is up for a quick spin to Detroit. Hawkman agrees and prays that they aren't too late because they may be working on to win one war while setting the stage for another in America itself. Next time. The fire. This time. And looking at the All-Star Companion Volume 2 to get the historical notes. There's quite a lot of them this time around. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, because this this issue kind of needs it, you know, all things being equal. Right. Uh, In 1942, Paradise Valley was the name of Detroit's Negro Ghetto. This slum would figure in further race riots in June 1943 as thousands of people, both black and white, continued to pour into Michigan from the south and elsewhere as its auto industry retooled for war production. Though such phrases are rare in the series, one diner patron calls the all-stars... I don't even want to say this. Um, N-word lover. How about that? That Uh, works. Our man's response, you've still got 32 teeth, pal. Would you like to try for none? That's a good line. Real American says, federal bureaucrats are trying to force 18 anchors of Negroes down our throats. A reference to the Sojourner Truth housing project. One man uses the expression dictator nations to refer to Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan, a term used in All-Star Comics number 4 in 1941. The name of Will Everett's lady friend, Rachel Lindsay, was adapted from that of Amer- African-American poet Vashel Lindsay, who lived from 1879 to 1931. When Johnny Quick says he'll bring the Phantom Empire to the president's attention, Rachel snaps that FDR did nothing the previous summer when 50,000 African Americans were to were about to march on Washington, D.C. to protest against discrimination. Roosevelt got his wife Eleanor to talk to planner A. Philip Randolph into calling it off. FDR, in Rachel's words, then made one speech against racism, created a toothless commission, and that was it. And it's true that the new Fair Employment Practices Commission was hardly likely to agitate for racial equality while war was raging. FDR is equally noncommittal when GL and Hawkman try to enlist his aid. He insists the racial strife is a local matter, and as was his wont, deflects the conversation by asking Hawkman, By the way, how's that gal of yours, Hawkgirl? Green Lantern refers to a recent speech by FDR in which he stated that Dr. New Deal has been replaced by Dr. Win the War. Meaning that social legislation such as was passed under his New Deal during the Depression 1930s would now have to take a backseat to whatever was necessary to carry on the war. The letters page contains a letter from Martin Odell about the creation of Green Lantern. And one letter writer suggests that had FDR really known in advance about the attack on Pearl Harbor, he'd still have wanted the superheroes there to greet the Japanese and US forces in Hawaii. Uh, wouldn't have been as devastated as they were in our world. And special features in number 39 include a 1947 house ad for the Junior Justice Society an All-Star Comics number 37, uh, Roy Thomas' JJSA membership certificate, and a full-page 47 ad for Flash Comics number 86.
1: That was quite a bit of notes. That is a lot of stuff. I'm looking at the stuff that's pictured here to see if anything here is really... Uh... Relevant to all of this as well. Uh, Let's see. There's a reprinting of uh, you know a tiny little reprint of uh, page one. It just says the quintet of all stars at an all night uh, Detroit diner. It says the surly proprietor, Smiley, and the top sign in the window reserve the right to refuse service to anyone have their roots in George Stevens' Giant, 1956 one of Roy Thomas' favorite films. Therein, uh, Bick Benedict, played by Rock Hudson, overcomes his own prejudices and slugs it out uh, with a counterman named Sarge defending the rights of his son's Mexican wife and child to eat in a Texas diner. You know, I have never, uh, I've never seen Giant. That's one of those movies I keep meaning to get around to one of these days, but I've actually not, uh, not seen that one. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. I believe that's a, um, uh, what was his name, Dean, um, James Dean picture, I think. Mm-hmm. Let's see, there's a picture here of the uh, the scene where Firebrand makes the Burning Cross burn out, essentially. Uh, it says, Firebrand makes the Ku Klux Klan-style Burning Cross really burn in number 38, art by Hoburg and Collins. It says, this echoes a scene Roy Thomas had written in Marvel's Fantastic Four number 119, in which The Thing, at the finale of the story set in the fictitious South African nation of Rodyarda, asks the Human Torch to wait a moment while he demolishes a wall featuring separate marked doors for Europeans and coloreds. And then there's a picture here of the cover of Invaders, a Marvel comic, Invaders number 28. It says, most of the racism expressed by the characters in Roy Thomas' earlier Marvel series, the Invaders was aimed against people of Japanese descent. But Bucky Toro and Nisei Golden Girl fought alongside the young African-American human top. The uh, latter pair... Created for The Invaders, number 28. Took the names of the Caucasian 1940s timely Marvel superheroes. art by Frank Robbins and Frank Springer. Hmm. Okay. I
2: I, I like The Invaders a lot. I never warmed to Frank Robbins as an artist. Love him as a writer. Uh, Yeah. Never really warmed up to him as an artist, unfortunately. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we covered an issue of uh the invaders on back to the bins not long ago when we did our captain america uh shameless plug episode of when you know when the movie was coming out i think that was i don't remember whose choice that was i think that was bill's choice if i'm not mistaken it was a good story but yeah i agree with you the uh the art kind of left me a little cold on that which is the main reason i still haven't read that series yet i probably will eventually check it out though because uh if it's half as good as All-Star, I imagine I would probably really like it. And I did like that one issue that we covered on there.
0: So what do we got, so, Scott?
1: let's see. Oh, it's my turn, isn't it? Let's yes, see. It All is. right. Notes on this particular issue. Um, I don't think I have a whole lot, to be honest with you. Page one. Shouldn't those signs be facing out the window? <laughs> what, the... Um the thing about the
2: help the white people
1: well, there's two of them there's one that's uh up in the corner it says we reserve the right to refu- refuse service to anyone and then there's another one that's uh yeah help the white people i can't read everything that's in it and it's in the window of the diner but it's facing into the diner of course we you know we as the reader our perspective is inside the diner as well so you wouldn't be able to read them if they were facing out but logically i think these should be facing out right
2: yeah i well, usually the we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody is inside. That's true. A building, and I guess somebody would have just taped up. I think it's it's taped up in a really awkward place because usually yeah. you can put it right on the glass. Uh, but Firebrand had to find
1: it. So. I, I guess that's ultimately it, it's not maybe so much that it should be facing out as that why would you put it in the window that mm. that does seem very strange. Um, the uh, the guy behind the counter the the short order cook or whoever this guy is reminds me of Barth from You Can't Do That On Television. <laughs> it's like Barth crossed with a mongoloid or something. Just, <laughs> yeah. Uh this guy's
2: suspicious is all I'm gonna say. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very much so. I really don't have a lot on this. My next note is way ahead in the book on page uh fourteen It's mentioned here... Where was it? Oh, it's in the very first panel. Our man says... uh, He says, Feels funny going into battle after basking in a miracle, Miracle Ray instead of just popping a pill. And I'm wondering... Maybe we'll see this at some point. Maybe we have seen this, and I've just forgotten. But how does the miracle ray work exactly? Is it portable? Is it something he like shines in his face or something? Or I think it's probably something similar to what Phantom Lady has. See, that's what I'm wondering. Because otherwise,
2: if it was like a machine, because that's because that's, that's what happened in the uh, the fight with Baron Blitzkrieg.
1: She he got hit with the blacklight ray, and that somehow powered him up. That's right. Okay, you're right. It's just, you know, when I first read this, my initial thing was, you know, I, I pictured a, him going to, like, some, like, like David Banner-type t- machine where he'd actually have to sit and be, like, bathed in the rays. And I'm like, well, that doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> By the time he would get to Detroit, it would have worn off. So I was trying to imagine how that all worked, you know? Uh, it works as long as the plot needs it to. Right. The art in this one is weird because... I I like it a lot, but it's often very stiff and kind of lifeless, a, a little posed looking. But then every once in a while you get moments of, of real greatness with the art. I love the second panel on page 15 where our man is holding, I don't know, it's a log or a telephone yeah. pole or something over his head and spinning it like a... Uh, You know, like a bow staff or something and clobbering people. It's really cool. I like that sequence quite a bit. And... Like a quarter staff or a buck and a quarter staff. Yeah. (laughs) You know, beyond that, I have to be honest, I really don't have any other specific notes. I enjoyed this issue... But I didn't enjoy it as much as the prior issue. The prior issue really took me by surprise because, as I mentioned last episode, based on the cover alone and having not read the series in a while, I really expected to hate last issue because Uh I really thought it was going to get on another Roy Thomas soapbox and and be preachy and everything, and it turned out that it wasn't. Uh, I mean, a lot of the issue... uh, was kind of it was almost like a catching you up to speed kind of issue but i just there was something about last issue i really really loved this time around not so much this was kind of the issue i was dreading that last issue was going to be i find it to be extremely preachy i understand that these things really happened i understand that it's a very um ugly period in american history i I appreciate what i think roy was going for but i don't know i personally i just didn't i didn't want to relive i didn't need it preached to me you know what i mean i guess that's the most sensitive way i can try to put it but that said i mean there were elements of it that i really liked one thing that i really like again is uh i love amazing man i really liked seeing amazing man come back And he gets a chance to kind of unleash and whoop a little ass in this. Not much, but a little bit. And uh, I really like that character. So anytime we can get some Amazing Man in here, I'm a happy guy. Because, honestly, one of my favorite obscure superheroes. I I dig Amazing Man quite a bit. Beyond that, I I really don't have too much on this. I can't wait. Because I can't remember if it happens. I'm hoping it does. But I can't wait for a real American to get stomped. I'm I'm hoping that that's going to happen. Yeah, it, I, I know what he's eventually revealed to be, but I can't remember if that revelation also comes with an ass-whooping, and I hope it does, but I, I just can't remember.
2: I, I get what you're saying about it being very preachy. The the problem with stories like this is that unless you're really, really, because really, I can speak and I don't have a speech impediment, Unless you're really willing to get into both sides. And I'm not saying that, you know, the side of racism is a side that, you know, we should listen to. Because even, you know, it's, it's like that old Leonard Nimoy thing where he's just like, <laughs> listen to the mentally infirmed, for they too have a story. No, it's, it's you know, it, it's not like that. But at the same time, you know, I don't know if we talked about this last time, uh, but the movie American History X with Mm -hmm. Edward Norton one of the things that I loved about that film outside of the fact that the acting on the part of everybody in that movie was amazingly impressive is that as despicable as the things Edward Norton was saying uh, especially in the flashback sequences the way he played that character you could see why somebody who's maybe a little disenfranchised with life would buy into it because it's a boat that they can cling to right You, you know uh, it's you know it's happened countless times through history when things get rough, people want a scapegoat so but we don't get that here. What we get is I don't necessarily want to call them straw man villains uh because the dialogue is a little better than that but we're we're like we're like almost a straw man villain here where everybody in this diner at the beginning is a racist right everybody right, and I don't buy that. I, I, I can see where there was probably, you know, groups that didn't want the African Americans moving into the projects, but I can't think that every white person in Detroit was against it. You know, that, right. just, that just doesn't scan with me. I can see people arguing about it in a diner. You know, it's, it's, it's like when you watch movies set in the South. And, you know, everybody in, like, the, 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 the small town eatery is a racist. Now, having experienced and seen a lot of racism in the South, I can kind of almost buy it. But at the same time, it's, it's, it doesn't make for compelling fiction. You know, the, 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 the short order cook, Barth, um, how <laughs> do you say that? I can't really see anything else. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, he's not a really compelling character, and yet not to give anything away, he is. And then, we get, God, this kind of bugged me. Firebrand has proven, throughout the course of this series, that she is more than capable of taking care of herself. And, she lights the thing on fire on page three, the jackass grabs her arm, I wanted her to take care of
0: it. Right. I
2: didn't want Robot Man coming in, and saving the day. And, yeah, I thought it was funny that the one guy who got his arm grabbed. You know, I don't really need. I I appreciate Roy's attempts at authenticity. I'm surprised this got a this got through in the comics code and the DC of the 80s. Yeah, to have that word just flat yeah that, out straight up in there.
0: That
1: uh, frankly, that really did shock me. Um, only because I can remember when marvel tried to do it they got they only got away with it because they did it in uh, god loves man kills you know which yeah. was a uh,
2: graphic novel
1: graphic you know I was going to say prestige but yeah it was a graphic novel so it wasn't a regular you know on the stands you know kid accessible type of thing it was more of a specialty item whereas this is just in a regular issue. And, yeah, it, it did kind of surprise me that, oh, wow, <laughs> I was not expecting that, you know?
2: Uh, I, I agree with you on the art, where in some pages it's kind of stiff and awkward. And then on other pages, like page four, there's that shot of Our Man walking towards the group, and his cape is kind of swirling. Mm-hmm. And it looks really cool. And on the, on the uh, next page, Robot Man running towards the camera that's a really cool panel as well. Mm-hmm. And then you get to Real American, and he's all stiff. And it's just, it's kind of an awkward transition. Um, speaking of kind of awkward scenes, well, one, on page six, Real American says, deeds, not words, and, you know, megaphors, because you know, <laughs> deeds, not words. But one guy in the crowd speaks out against him, he's brought up on the stage, and then absolutely nothing comes of it. He doesn't get his ass kicked, he's just there to prove how powerful Real American is. And it just doesn't... Again, it, it all feels like... It's almost like they're trying too hard to make these guys bad guys, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. So, uh, the whole scene at Paradise uh, Valley, this I actually found kind of compelling. Because Rachel, Will Everett's fiancé, is an extremely bitter woman, but Roy actually takes the time to kind of have her fully explain why she's so mad. Now, if she was just mad at, for lack of a better term, mad at Whitey, you know that would be one thing, but she goes into how the president really hasn't done anything, and you know what? That would piss me off too. You know, we're 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 supposedly fighting for freedom and democracy, you know, overseas, but in a but in our own in our own borders, why aren't we taking care of that? So this was the only part of the issue where that kind of thing came up, and I was actually behind it. Um, page eleven, uh, more straw man care uh, villains. You have this woman getting into it with Libby Lawrence. Libby, by the way, looking very hot on this page. <laughs> the art really picked up here. Uh, I mean, I could have just done it. I could have just gone for like the one guy going, "Your people, be- you people, better report this thing right if you know what's good for you." And um, I, I kind of liked that. But then you had the woman coming up and giving them guff, and it was just like, <sighs> "Okay, you're going a little too far here." Uh, okay, now. I you know I watch a lot of Law and Order, but I have I have no idea how you know assault and stuff really works. But it seems to me that if a crowd of people throws a brick at a man's face, and then forces a truck off the road, and then forcibly opens the back of that truck, and then hurls another brick, that who's ever in that truck is just defending themselves. So why in the hell is amazing man being arrested at the end of this issue?
1: Cuz he's black. I I'm not that's let me let me back up a moment. I don't say that like attempting to get a laugh or or a joke or or in any sort of I say that because I was intrigued by all this. So I went and I did some reading up. Now, granted, most of the reading I did was off of Wikipedia, so, you know, take that as you will. I take all that stuff with a grain of salt. But I was interested in this because I kind of wondered, how does this dynamic play out? Because I don't, I don't know where Next Issue is going. I haven't read ahead. But I'm, I'm getting the feeling, I mean, most of, well, you know, the historical notes said, this leads to something that happens in 1943. We're not going to get that far. So we're not going to see that. So I was curious what what are you talk, what happened in 43 so I did some reading on the whole thing. And essentially what it came down to is while it sounds like a bad movie from, you know, way back when, this all really happened to where these things just got horribly out of hand. And unfortunately because of the times that it was, the people who typically wound up on, you know, quote unquote, the wrong side of the law, the people that typically got their heads bashed in and wound up being shackled and carted off to jail were the black people, whether they instigated anything or not. And it's just one of those things I would encourage people, if if you're at all interested in this, you know, the the actual historic thing that happened, do some reading up on it. It's not pretty. And I, I realize that that's what Roy Thomas was trying to, uh, shed some light on here was, you know, that this happened and, and this is kind of how it was. But I guess my problem with it is twofold. For one, why? Why dredge it all up? Um, I realize that things aren't perfect in this country, not even in 1984, but we definitely come a hell of a long ways in, in 40 years from this sort of nonsense. So I always kind of question, why are you dredging this up? But also, my problem with it is if you're going to dredge it up, and I don't want this to sound like an insult to Roy, but can you nuance it for me just a little bit? Everybody is such a stereotype in this. Because mm-hmm. like you said, Mike, every every white person in the diner is a racist asshole. Most of the black people are... One of two types. They're either just the completely innocent, you know, they're, they're just trying to move in because they paid rent and, and this is, you know, where they want to live and they're just trying to forge a new life. Or like Will Everett's girlfriend, I, I'm sorry, I didn't see her as nuanced at all. I thought she was the stereotypical angry black woman. And so it, it was almost insulting in that characterization. What I really would have liked to have seen here were some shades of gray let's get some common man, white Detroit people that were like on the black people side, like, Hey, they paid rent. Why don't you let them move in? Let's get, and I know this would be a very dangerous path to go down. I would have loved to have seen at least one all-star or JSA or rather, um, you know, even if it was just a thought balloon in their own head and they didn't share the thought with anybody else, it was kind of like, yeah, I wouldn't want to live in this area either. You know, I wouldn't want these people moving into my, b-. you know what I mean? A little with a little bit of maybe their own prejudices at work here, yeah. feeling conflicted. And we didn't get any of that. Everybody's like squeaky clean in the All-Stars. I have trouble buying. Well,
2: that. You see, I don't even buy that because at the end, the, our heroes, the ones fighting for American democracy are just like, well, he broke the law. It's like, okay, I can see the law enforcement establishment that was maybe predisposed to arresting African Americans at this point because they're the ones that they wanted to blame. I can buy them doing it. I don't buy Johnny Quick standing by and doing nothing. Right. Right. And that bugged me more than anything. He was cool yeah. back at the diner, but this is serious. These men are being arrested for defending themselves. They right. are heroes who are vigilantes. Yes, they are approved by the president, so and all that. So maybe they have some, you know, legal standing that's a little more than just being costume crime fighters. But all of these people except Robot Man, and it's just cuz he can't are wearing a mask, you know right away they're keeping their identity secret they are above normal law enforcement procedures so why are they just just sitting there doing nothing now the answer to that question is they have to for purposes of plot right but it just it just bugs me now you know we had a little bit of the racial insensitivity on the part of firebrand back when she was first introduced you know she was mad at the japanese because of pearl harbor and actually An all star you might not think of as being kind of racist, we kind of see that when we get into young all stars uh, on the other side of the crisis. So we will see that. But yeah, that would have been, that would have made for a more interesting story. Now, I'm not saying that everything was made up by the last page, but are you kind of jazzed that, you know, okay, if two people are going to take care of this situation, it's Hawkman and Green Lantern? (laughs) they are the two badasses of the jsa and now they're heading to detroit Mm -hmm. i am excited (laughs) i haven't read this since you know 2000 but man just you know just because the big guys are going in because hawkman isn't afraid of cracking some skulls right you know we we call him an asshole but you know sometimes you want that guy on your side so (laughs) um I just liked the last page. Uh, I, I think it was a great way to end the issue. But yeah, it was just this... I understand that he was probably wanting... That Roy... You know, and I hate to speak for him because he's he's not here to defend himself. So this is all conjecture on my part. But I think he was trying to kind of frame a story around a historical event to kind of, you know, do an, a, a different type of World War Two story. Right. But at the same time, as we've been saying, it would have been nice to have uh, more of a fleshed out adversary. Now in the next issue, the the couple things that I remember, one we're actually going to be tying this into the monitor, so right. that's going to be kind of interesting to see but as a middle chapter I was just, uh, I was left a little disappointed, so I'm kind of hoping that the ass kicking Real American is probably about to receive uh, is kind of worth going through this issue. <laughs>
1: Well plus I, I couldn't help but feel that possibly Roy was taking some political pot shots at FDR as well, just by the tone of some of it. Maybe not. Maybe maybe he was so skilled as a writer that you know the, the, the uh you know the girlfriend, maybe the girlfriend's voice was so strong, you know, with, with her objections that maybe it just kind of read that way.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I, I, maybe I'm reading more into it was actually there. But, you know, she had some very strong objections and, and some very strong criticisms against FDR and his, and his po- policies and especially his his failed policies. And, and I was having trouble determining, is this the character's voice or is this Roy actually trying to speak to us as the writer saying, you know, by the way, you know, i you know, whatever you know what i mean and and mm-hmm. i had i kind of struggled with that a little bit too i didn't live through those times you know i i don't yeah. know what it was like to to have been an american under f d r but you know from a historical perspective he he's one of the most respected presidents we ever had, so it was a little tough reading some of these things you know said about him in that context because I tend to uh, I tend to look at him you know in the in the context of you know the the criticism was you know well why wasn 't he focused on this why is why is all of his focus on winning the war well yeah shouldn 't that kind of be his focus at that point? I mean I understand the criticism that you know why wasn 't he doing more over here while this is going on, but you know i just I tend to be I tend to be like that. That's the kind of leadership and the kind of management that I like of any situation. Is don't be busy fighting the little fires. Concentrate on the on the burning building. You know what I mean? Okay.
2: But but here, I'm going to throw this out there, and this is not to turn into a, a political or historical debate. Mm-hmm. But you know, FDR, while hailed as, a, you know, the, the the president that won World War II and that, you know, was a light in our darkest hour is also criticized for bringing about certain policies that certain political groups thought was contrary to what America should be representing. So you had a president that for the bulk of his first couple of terms was very focused on America in general getting into the small towns getting people back to work you know the work projects administration you know paying writers and and photographers to travel the country and take photographs and stuff like that to give them a job instead of being on the public dole that kind of thing so it, it, it it's not out of the realm of possibility that a president that was focused on what's going on at home to have him suddenly shift that focus to purely overseas would be a little jarring and something to criticize. Like, Oh, it's like, we understand there's a war, but you made your bones as a president by being focused on your country. And now we're fighting a war and a lot of these things are slipping through the cracks. So, that's if I was going to come up with an argument against it that would be the only argument I would really come up with
1: that actually yeah and that makes sense that does that's actually a very valid uh valid point that I hadn't really considered
2: so I mean here's the thing before World War II started America was pretty much divided amongst people who wanted to get in the war there were a lot of people who didn't want to get in the war, and there were a lot of people who just didn't care. Right. So to say that we were all, you know, to, to try to paint 1940s America as us all, like, gunning to get into World War II, it was really only after Pearl Harbor that most people were willing to get into the war. Most wanted to keep out of it. That was Europe's problem, and we don't, you know, we don't need to get involved in that.
1: All right, we have so, been isolationists for quite yeah. some time at that point.
2: So it's really easy to kind of try to paint the past with our present, I don't want to say prejudices, but maybe perceptions to keep up the P words. And I'm not trying to be alliterative, it's just turning out that way. Uh, I don't know why. But, you know, it, you know, you said we don't know what it's like to live back then. You don't. Uh, there were probably people in Detroit that were just fine with everyone moving in because it was kind of a hotbed because that's where the jobs were so all these different people were going to Detroit from the South so, but to, to think that everybody in the North hated black people is just, it, it just bugged me it just bugged me that the one voice of opposition to what the real American was saying just has his say is physically threatened and nothing is done beyond that, now if you're going to talk purely story at that point, you had to move on. But it would have been nice to, to like see him either say, well, you're still, you're still wrong, you know, you can threaten me, but blah, blah, blah. But no, we don't get that. We get, we get Robot Man saying something that I happen to agree with. These people have a right to say whatever they want to say. It's a great thing about the First Amendment and free speech. Everyone can say whatever they want to say as long as they don't act on it. I may not agree with it, but I will defend their right to say it, even if I find it morally and in every way reprehensible. But here's the thing, Robot Man. Real American just said, I'm going to go start some shit. So why aren't you stopping this now, before it gets out of hand? <laughs> I basically blame everything that goes wrong in this issue on our hero's inability to do anything but stand there and talk.
1: It does make them it makes them in a, in a weird and uncomfortable way. It makes them seem just as as complicit with the situation as mm-hmm. the white cops that don't really do anything to the white rabble rousers, but are right quick to jump on uh, you know the, the black folk that that wind up. You know, in a tussle or or something like that, because that's essentially, as I understand it, as as I as I read up on this situation, that is a lot of what happened. That it, it seemed like the bulk of the time when there ended up being a clash between the races, it was always the the poor black people that that got the short end of the stick and and wound up you know, carted off in the paddy wagon or whatever. And a, a lot of that seemed to be because the both the police force and the powers that be that were actually running Detroit at the time, they were no more behind this uh, occupancy or this, this uh, you know, the having the blacks move into the area than, than the people that were protesting about it. So they weren't really trying their best to so much bring peace, as to try to uh, almost reinforce that position, um, either quietly or, or just complicitly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and yeah. that that's you know that's awful. That's a, that's a terrible way to, to treat that situation because they're the people that are supposed to be uh, you know the the. Justice enforcers, and they're Mm -hmm. supposed to be impartial in that enforcement of justice. So, yeah, but but then, you know, again, give me that story. Yeah. You know, why... Ultimately, I kind of fail to understand what the point of drudging all this up in the way that it was drudged up was. It it almost feels like a... like filler or like an incomplete story. Like, well, you know, in that... In that sense, though, perhaps he was setting up for the later story that would never come. Yeah. Either that or he's setting
2: Green Lantern and Hawkman to be the ones that come and take care of the situation. So. But That's I possible, the, too. But there's a scene in the next issue that I do remember vividly that kind of takes the piss out of anything. It's like uh, anything Johnny Quick doesn't do in this issue. So it's like he's saving something for next issue. But that's really... I mean, we're talking about a character that will run off at like a moment's provocation to go deal with whatever he thinks needs to be dealt with. I mean, it's just like... i Maybe we're being overly critical on this and maybe we need to move on, but I just... It's just this was kind of a little... kind of a disappointing issue overall. Uh, not that it was terrible, it was just... It just, re- it just leaves you, you know, for the purposes of actually, like, you know, doing some critical analysis, you know, it-, it leaves you scratching your head a
1: lot. Right. So. Well, you know, also with this being Earth, there's always the possibility that maybe what Roy was setting up was, uh, was a divergence at some point. Uh, between you know what what happened in our w- real world and and what would have happened here in in, in Earth Two's World War Two, I, I don't know because again you know we're we're not going to make it to 1943 Earth Two, so who, you know who knows what he may have been setting up here. But yeah, I uh, I agree with your assessment. Um, I, I didn't dig it as much as I had hoped to. I liked the art, I liked uh, some of the character beats, but overall the story itself uh, kind of left me high and dry. So, Sorry, Roy Thomas, <laughs> not so much on this one.
2: Well, folks, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to move to 1984, and Mr. Scott here is going <laughs> to... Mr. Scott, <laughs> I saw. suddenly... Suddenly, you're uh, piloting the Enterprise. Very good. Uh, (laughs) Or or at least running the engine room uh, because I I watched Star Trek, I promise. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about Infinity Incorporated number eight and then get into some crisis management.
0: together from the disparate reaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled ryan the toy geek scott the award-winning radio host jeff scott's minion and run. Just run. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at 2TrueFreaks.com calabac decide. It is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the who podcast Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends, so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man, who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC, who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, and Arisia Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What?
1: What about that one guy? What guy? Mr.
2: Pretzel,
0: Mr. Lipstick, Mm -hmm. Mr. Mitzelfuzzle. Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe.
1: Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water Podcast.
0: Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman.
1: Hulk! Smash! Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.com
2: Alright folks, we are back and I'm going to handle it off right to Madman Scott Gardner. Who's gonna <laughs> give, I don't know why I'm calling you Madman, but who's going to give us the skinny on Infinity Incorporated. Number 8, the Generation Saga continues <laughs> with a vengeance.
1: I'm not mad, I'm just drawn that way. All right, Infinity Number... No, well, you're
2: pretty much angry all the time.
1: <laughs> no, I'm not. Infinity, Inc., number eight. This is the November 1984 cover dated issue. It was on sale August 16th, 1984, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Original cover price on this issue was $1.25. Cover on it is by Jerry Ordway and uh, I really like this one. It depicts, uh, you've got uh, Obsidian and Jade and uh, Northwind are standing around, and they're watching as Wildcat is kind of beaming in, I guess, on a fight between Nuclon and the Atom. It's actually a really cool cover. I like this one quite a bit. So I was thinking, I miss the roll calls that we used to do. I miss the roll calls being in... Uh, these JSA-style issues, and uh, they haven't included one in quite a while. So I made one up for you, and I think I pretty much got everybody here. So we got Fury, we got the Silver Scarab, Northwind, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, The Flash, Hawkwoman, sorta, Dr. Midnight, Superman, Robin, The Huntress, Green Lantern, Jade, Obsidian, Nuclon, Wildcat, and The Atom. And I think I pretty much nailed everybody. So the title of this story is Atomic Dreams, Nuclear Nightmares. It was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Jerry Ordway, with inks by Mike Macklin on pages 1 through 11, and Tony Dizaniga on pages 12 through 21. And you can bet you I'm going to have something to say about that. So, our story starts off. Steve Trevor, father of Infinity Inc. team member Fury, lies critically injured at the hands of his wife, Wonder Woman, who is still suffering the effects of the stream of ruthlessness. Fury wants to rush her dad to a hospital, but Wonder Woman insists on employing Amazonian medicine to patch up her hubby, and, of course, a tussle breaks out. Too bad for the Infinitors that they are no match whatsoever for and she flees with Steve in her invisible plane leading Norda to watch over the unconscious Hawkman because let's face it he's not good for much else Silver Scarab and Fury head to Colorado to play lead hunch that the ultra humanite is behind this whole mess in Mayberry RFD the Flash recovering in the local hospital is arguing with the mayor and his cops when Dr. Midnight arrives with Hawkwoman's wife in tow the sheriff recognizes Shira Hall, but she doesn't seem too concerned at the moment about the prospect of a blown secret identity. She's just happy hearing that her hubby isn't dead after all. Remember, folks, that the JSAers were believed to have drowned uh, before they turned up again, raising all kinds of hell uh, under the sway of the stream of ruthlessness. On TV, we are treated to more of Superman's forced urban renewal of Metropolis, the arrest of Robin at Gotham Island Prison, and then GA interrupts this broadcast with an important news bulletin that he's going to take over the airwaves as communications czar of the entire planet. <laughs> Obviously, you know, this is a stream-induced playing out of his subconscious desire for revenge following his ouster from uh, Gotham Broadcasting a while back. Dr. Midnight, who uh, carries the antidote to the stream's effects, asks the sheriff to take he and Shiera to where the drowned JSA's bodies were found, and the three set out for Wolverton Mountain. In the JSA Brownstone, Jade, Obsidian, and Nuclon confer with Wildcat about Green Lantern's strange extortion message. The twins take off for space to confront their could-be father leaving Nuclon and Wildcat to tackle the atom problem. Trouble is, they don't know where to find the little guy. So Nuclon calls his mom, and she was essentially raised by the atom, so she gives them uh, a clue that they can follow uh, concerning the origins of the atom's superpowers. So they set out for the Bales City uh, reactor, where, sure enough, the mighty might is intent on beefing up his waning abilities via a blast from of thorium rays from this giant machine, this giant cannon thing. Unfortunately, during the inevitable tussle between he and Nucleon, it is the younger hero who ends up taking a dangerously high dosage from the ray cannon. What effects, if any, will this blast have on the Mohawked Infinidor? Only time will tell. The Atom, so enraged by having missed his big opportunity to re-energize himself, throws the massive machine at his godson, seemingly crushing him flat. Elsewhere, the ultra-humanite rings up the monitor and Lila on a view screen to report on his good fortune in battling the JSA and Infinity Inc. with the monitor's devices. At Wolverton Mountain, the trio of the sheriff, Shira Hall, and Dr. Midnight arrive and discover a mysterious grated vent in the snow. Next issue, the penultimate chapter of the Generation Saga, Power Pulse versus Power Ring to the Death. So what you got for historical stuff on this one, Mike? Wolverton Mountain.
2: Wasn't that like a Glenn Miller song? Or, a, <laughs> or a, who was the guy that did... uh no trailers for Sailor Lit. Rooms to Lit. Roger Miller. That's
0: Roger Miller, good. yeah.
2: So, that was a bad joke. <laughs> uh, historical notes are few and far between for this one. Uh, this issue also includes a pinup and vital data sheet of Power Girl by Mac, Mike Macklin and Robert Greenberger, who did the writing. Bale City, Utah, the background for the new clone Atom Battle, is named for Dr. Jerry Bales, noted JSA fan, mm-hmm. and released in of All-Star Comics. And the Monitor is a character from the forthcoming limited series Crisis on Infinite Earths, whereas I like to call him, probably one of the more awkward ways to bring the Monitor into the story. <laughs> Alter Humanite, you want to hear what I did? No? Okay. I'll be going now bye um, for me in notes on this I don't have a whole lot I really like the cover uh, except the fact that Norda's on it I mean that, that's the only thing really ruining it but uh, Nuclon and Adam look good <laughs> kind of smashing the hell out of each other uh, Jerry Ordway and Mike Macklin cannot not draw a sexy Wonder Woman even when she's older um, maybe I'm just seeing a little too much Linda Carter but you know that's not a bad thing at this point. Uh, page three. Norda gets smacked across the room. Unfortunately, he gets up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, waiting for the first piece of stop Norda defending male. Exactly. <laughs>
2: stop picking up Northby. You're my favorite character. It's never gonna happen. I mean I, I know Harlan Freilicher is listening to the show and he agrees with us, so we, we have many people in our in our corner. Uh page seven, really funny little bit here. Um Jay Jay Garrick is in the hospital bed he goes, spare me your small town squabbles, fellas, and get that souvenir hound of a deputy away from my closet unless he wants a really swift kick in the pants. <laughs> Cause Jay kind of strikes me as the guy that would just kind of smack you upside the Hedge Gibbs style on NCIS when you thought you were doing something wrong uh, thank you uh, former Hawk Girl for having the worst secret identity ever <laughs> um, Green Lantern taking over the airwaves is both appropriate and amusing all at the same time <laughs> but I like the fact that they're bringing up him losing you know, Gotham Broadcasting which we covered back in the early days of this show Right, so it's nice that everything kind of goes back from there Uh, Jerry Ordway draws a very nice Doctor Midnight in fact just about everybody looks good Mm -hmm. uh, in this issue except maybe the Ultra Humanite who looks a little funky in in certain panels Um, nice that uh, the fight between Adam and Wildcat and then Adam and Nuclon was actually pretty entertaining Uh, I'm kind of surprised that they you know he he threw a piece of machinery and basically just thought that his godson was dead. Uh, again, we have a, 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 a crisis appearance where Lila is once again wearing her very revealing jumpsuit outfit that we will never see again outside of these <laughs> early appearances. And... I'm looking forward to the next two issues because, you know, the story wraps up in a rather exciting way, but is it me or is this padded out a little too much?
1: I've been thinking that for a while, but I hesitated to say anything because I I know that you are quite enamored of the Generation saga, but I've been feeling that for a while that yeah, this saga's it's running a little long. I I think there could have been some uh, condensing going on here.
2: I mean, it's been entertaining. I've really liked the fights that we've seen. It's the young versus the old. That's a good way to bring it, you know, to introduce this type of series. But mm-hmm. it's just at the same time, it's just like, I'm kind of ready for this team to actually kind of get together and be a team.
1: Gel, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So absolutely. Well, I mean, part of it too is the fact that this is the the opening story of this. It, it would have been nice to kind of get to know the Infinitors and and let that team gel before you do the whole you know, old versus new thing. Because even, I, I can remember when this style of story was done, say, like with the X-Men. You know, you had the, the all new, all different X-Men versus like the original X-Men. We got mm-hmm. to kind of know those guys a little bit first before we got yeah. that fight. And, and the Avengers, I think, even did something similar to that. So... Yeah, it would have been nice to get to know Infinity Inc. as actual characters and as a as a cohesive team before you pit them against their parents. And I don't know that I I don't really get the feeling that we have gotten to know them that way. I, I don't know if maybe Roy felt that between, you know that that kind of teaser. Story with them going back into the forties in in All Star Squadron, like between that and then the beginning chapters of uh, Generations, like maybe that was enough. But for me, it really wasn't because I I think you've even said the same thing yourself. It's not really till later that we get to know and and begin to care about these characters.
2: And and it's really funny that right around the time that that happens. The entire rug is pulled out from under the team, and Roy <laughs> has to reestablish everything.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah.
2: So it's kind of... It's just kind of weird, you know?
1: It, it is, and I, I think you get upon why I like this team, but later. It, yeah. it really isn't... For me, personally, it, it's strange, because I, I, I think, if I recall, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think you've said that, like, basically after this you kind of stop caring so much about the team it's funny for me it's kind of the opposite it's not until after the crisis that i begin that i begin to care about them because as you just said that's where the characters really start to get so, some meat on their bones because roy has to basically reinvent like half the team and, yeah, and I, I think towards the middle of this run uh, of
2: uh, of the Infinity Incorporated's lifespan, when he starts focusing on characters, I do think it gets it gets better as a as a as a series, mm-hmm. and then things just kind of fall apart a little bit right there at the end. But you know, I, I think the same could be said for Young All Stars as well, so, right? And you know, if you want to get real world about it, that's when things were kind of starting to sour between him and DC, and you know, you know. These things have a shelf life, right? You, know, you can you can only keep up this kind of you know intensity. You know we're we're in kind of the waning days of All Star Squadron now, right? I mean we've we've only got about twenty seven more issues now. That may seem like a lot, but that's going to go by in a in a flash.
1: It's going to go fast, yeah. Well, I mean a lot of the the end of that series. After crisis becomes basically Secret Origins, yeah, and absolutely. so it's not as cohesive. But while we're headed through the crisis, uh, man, I'm looking forward to that because I remember mm-hmm. there being some really good stuff, like with Mechanique and stuff. I, I love that stuff. Oh, so we're gonna
2: have that stuff, and here we're gonna we're gonna get the annual where uh, the revelation of who right, Zidian and and. Uh, Jade's mother is, and you get all that kind of stuff, and uh, sadly we're, you know, coming up in this title, we're gonna get some Don Newton artwork, just not as much as we would want, Right. uh, thanks to his untimely death, and then we're gonna get into the Todd McFarlane years, and that's gonna be interesting to talk about all these years
1: later. (laughs) I I am so looking forward to re-examining Infinity Inc., because it's one of those strange titles for me that I have incredibly fond memories of Of reading, you know, as far as the emotions, I I have fond emotions of the series, but I can't really recall details much anymore. So I'm hoping that it it, it holds up and that it evokes the same kind of feelings. Because you know, the first time having read it, I, I was I really dug it a lot. So I'm hoping it does hold up for me. I'm hoping it holds up better than. Uh, Young All-Stars, which you mentioned, because Young All-Stars, I completely agree with you. I thought that, that started off gangbusters and really kind of sucked by the time it got canceled. As much as it pained me that it got canceled, you could see that coming. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you could really see that coming because the it, it just wasn't the book it was there toward the end. The, the art was suffering badly. I think the stories even kind of suffered too for just not being as uh, as engaging. But I don't remember Infinity Inc. that way. I, it, Infinity Inc. to me was a still uh, it was going along pretty strongly when it, it finally ended. But I didn't have that sense of loss with that one either because I bought that series entirely as back issues. I, I didn't buy any of them new coming out. So I knew where the end was because it, it had already ended quite a while before I even discovered the title. So maybe that's why it didn't have the same impact. Whereas... Young All-Stars, I was buying new right off the stand, so when they canceled that one, it, it did hurt, because it was like, ah, you know, liked that book. I was hoping it would recover from its slump, which it unfortunately never got a chance to. Uh, so, let's. So what do you got on this one? Not a whole lot, really. A um, couple quick notes here. I couldn't help but notice that this is not a Generations-bannered issue, meaning... um. You know, Up until now, I, I'm pretty sure, anyway, that the prior seven issues all said part such and such of the Generations saga. So I was thinking, when I opened this up to get the title of the story and I saw that there was no Generations banner, I thought, oh, did Generations end? And I didn't realize it, but obviously it didn't, because the next issue teaser at the end says, the penul- you know, next issue is the penultimate chapter of, uh, generations. So Generations, I, I thought it lasted ten issues, but I wasn't sure. But I just thought that was weird. So evidently somebody forgot to put, you know, part eight of the Generations saga at the top of the title on this. Uh, page
0: one,
1: we've got Wonder Woman, you know, she's lamenting what she has done to her husband and everything. You know, he's all banged up. The team's all gathered around. And, uh, you know, she's just lamenting that, you know, she she was trying to, to you know through what she was doing last issue she was trying to come up with a way to prolong Steve Trevor's life uh, basically to make him immortal and Norda says uh, but in trying to save him you may have doomed him and I'm like yeah th- thanks mr obvious that that helps <laughs> we we appreciate that you always have somebody like that don't you in a crowd that just has to point out something like that and you just want to yeah. smack him uh page 7 uh, I just, I, I just, I got to do it. I got to point this out. So page seven, uh, next to last panel on the page, <laughs> Cheryl Hall and Dr. Midnight come walking in. And uh, Dr. Midnight says, sorry it took us so long to get here. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, oh, well, yeah, you know, when you drive Helen Keller style, it, it takes a considerable time to get anywhere, dude. You know, one one hand on the wheel, one hand on the road. You know, what what way is that to get around? You know what I'm saying?
2: What did Helen Keller name her dog? How did Helen how did Helen Keller burn the right side of her face? She answered the iron. How did she burn the left side? It called back. I'm sorry. You
1: know how her parents used to punish her? How? Rearrange the furniture.
2: We got some Challenger jokes that we want to bring up <laughs> while we're being topical.
1: Uh, uh, welcome to the Helen Keller podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a vidcast, but come on.
1: <laughs> we should do. We should do a, a Helen Keller uh. episode. That's just blank. Two uh, like hours two of blank hours audio <laughs> <laughs> of like just a just a tone that's like right at the edge of your hearing. Oh, that'd be great. Oh, wow. Oh, I uh, was wrong. Straight to hell. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, do not pass go. Do not collect much. Wow.
1: Hours.
2: Oh, we're gonna uh, take
1: some heat for that.
2: Uh, <laughs> not from Helen Keller. She's dead. <laughs> All right, page
1: eight, the little inset news clip there. Is that Ted Koppel? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Does anybody in our audience under the age of 30 know who Ted Right, is? yeah, exactly. Oh, man, that just made me feel ancient, but you're probably right. Uh, let's see. Where the hell is my note on this page? Yes, you're, okay, here we go. So Nuclon calls up his mom, right, and she's telling him all about you know, the origins of his superpowers, essentially, which I don't want to go into much because I feel like that will be spoilery for things that are going to be revealed in All-Star Squadron, so I'm not going to go into that whole thing. You can read it for yourself if you want to, folks. But anyway, she comes up with this whole thing about um, you know, the origins of his powers, and it's tied to Thorium and blah, blah, blah. And then she says, oh, by the way, you know, there's this big thorium test going on at the Bale's reactor. And, and Albert, new clown, goes, that's it. That's where he's headed. And I'm thinking, how do you, how could you possibly know that? For for abs- I mean, he says it with such certainty. And sure enough, they go there and that's where he is. Oh, okay. I realize that's where the story's got to get. But this is one of those comic book cliches that I really wish we could retire at this point. Like... Oh yes, that's that must be the answer. Just one time and I don't I, I don't believe I've ever seen this in comics. One time I would like to, for the hero, be it Batman, Nuclon, whoever it might be, to go, oh yes, this, this must be it. And they go there and no. <laughs> they were completely wrong that it was some other thing that that was the thing that the bad guy was going to or whatever. But no, nope, they go there and sure enough that's that's where he's going. I just thought it was quite a stretch that how could she possibly know that, that this was his secret evil desire, you know, to beef up his superpowers or whatever? I, I just thought it was a bit of a stretch. Yeah. I was going to point out the thing about Bell City Reactor, but that was actually covered in the historical notes. Did you notice that the, uh, what do they call this thing a name? I guess they just call it the Sky Skimmer, the little Infinity Ink... Flying ship. Does this look like one of the superpowers toys to you? Like the like bit. the Lexor or something like that?
2: No, not the Lexor. It looks like that Delta probe.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Called. Yeah. I, I just I knew it looked kind of familiar. It's all it, this. If Infinity Inc had existed in another medium, like say a, car, a Saturday morning cartoon or something, I, I would say that this was like the toy placement of the issue. It's not, of course, but that sure is what it feels like to me in this. Not, not that that's a bad thing. I just thought it was interesting that obviously there's no toy line, but that sure does look like a toy that you could go out and buy at Walmart. Oh, or oh it
2: absolutely looks like a toy. I mean, yeah, it looks it looks like the Delta Probe One from the Superpowers line, which sounds kind of dirty, but
1: <laughs> um, my very last note for this one, beyond the fact that I. Uh, I definitely saw a change, and I gotta be honest, I think it was a change for the better when the uh, ink uh, inker switched over from Macklin to Diesniga. Now, of course, that's me with I, I I'm a Diesniga mark. I, yeah, I love his art. Yeah. I really, really do. But the very last panel on the last page, that shot of Doctor Midnight, damn, does he look great? It
2: is gorgeous. Isn't that Just awesome? That- just the costume looks great, the caval- the cavalier-type boots looks awesome, the way the cape is swirling in the wind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would put Jerry Ordway with uh mm-hmm. what's his name, Matt Wagner, who drew Doctor Midnight in the Who's Who entry, and Mike Parabek is like the three greatest yeah. artists of, uh, of Doctor Midnight ever, who made this costume look cool. Yeah because he's got this great tunic with the, the moon-shaped uh, buttons on it, the, you know, the brown gloves. I mean, everything just comes together in this page.
1: Well, plus, I, I think the contrast of him being in the snow and so much of his outfit is black, I think, really mm-hmm. works for the look, too. But, yeah, this is phenomenal. Phenomenal piece of art. I really, really like that last page.
2: I mean, frankly, we, we talked a couple episodes ago about the fact that we would have loved to seen Perez and Ordway do a Starman, Hourman series, but I could have been up for Ordway pretty much drawing a series based on any of these characters mm-hmm. <laughs> for an extended period of time.
1: Yeah, I uh, I love the fight between the Atom and uh, Wildcat and Nuclon. I think this is great. I like mm-hmm. the fact that the Atom is actually able to take out the Skyskimmer as well. But yeah, he does. He he makes these characters and their costumes work. Even the ones that I will often look out uh, look at their costume and think either eh or the, the, maybe they're a little bit outlandish or something. But here he really makes it work. The Adam uh, the Adam's really cool in this part. I like this. I mean, there's always
2: the Hourman exception, but that's because I've never found a single artist to not make his cape not look like a bath towel. Right. Uh. So. That may sound silly, but I stand by my statement.
1: <laughs> but that's pretty much all I got on this one. I dug it. I uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It is a bit of wheel spinning. Um, there, I mean, this saga, the Generation Saga, is definitely padded out. But at the same rate, I haven't been bored at all. I mean, it's not like one of those, it's not like a modern day story where, it's decompressed and padded out to a point of, like, I feel like I'm wasting time and money. Like, you know, just hurry up and get to the point. I haven't felt that way with this. Uh, so, you know, yeah, might be a little bit long, but I'm digging it.
2: That's about all what I really Helen got. What did Helen Keller get for Christmas? <laughs> oh, Polio. No. She had everything else. Oh, God. I found an entire page. Oh,
1: no. <laughs> Uh-oh, this is gonna become a thing I can I can tell already.
2: Did you did you know Helen Keller was one of the first people to go to Walt Disney World? <laughs> Neither did she. <laughs>
1: That's wrong, dude. <laughs>
2: All righty. I think, uh, wow, we've got a full one for this time out, don't we, for this? We do.
1: All right. So now we are going to get into Elsewhere, elsewhere in, the in the DC, DC Multiverse. Multiverse. Crisis, Crisis Management, Management Edition. Edition. Again, all synopses are pulled from the official Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index. So first up, I'm going... Uh, I forget where I got this order from. I think I actually got it from the Crossover Index, so that's the order I'm essentially going in here. So first up on the list, we have Flash, number 339. Oh, boy. The Monitor and Lila supply the villains of Flash's rogues gallery with futuristic armor that turns Doofus Ratchet, mental patient, into Big Sur supervillain. This is part two of two back-to-back pre-crisis monitor appearances in The Flash. Uh, the monitor's role in this issue is uh, most of page 16, and I'm just going to read it to you rather than uh, having written this whole thing out. It just It's so much easier to just read it right out of here. So we have uh, the monitor it's a shot of his satellite and we just see a word balloon that says how utterly fa- or, how- or actually it's not him speaking. It's her rather how utterly fascinating monitor. And there's a note from the editor that says for more information on the mysterious monitor, keep watching for further clues and appearances in other DC books. This is so far the only such caption. And I kind of feel like it takes away a little bit i i thought the idea was that you were supposed to figure it out over time that wow this guy's appearing anywhere and everywhere so this this kind of tips the hand a little bit i thought but uh lila continues we have an interior shot of the satellite and they're watching uh doofus ratchet get drenched by one of weather (laughs) wizards (laughs) storms and she says i'm referring to the bizarre use of the Flash's uh rogues gallery uh, has found for the package of future tech armor we sold them the other day, meaning in other words that they put it on a uh, mental patient. And the monitor says, need I remind you again, Lila? Once a client has paid for either the monitor's goods or services, how the merchandise or information is utilized is of no interest to me whatsoever. I deserve and record events. I do not editorialize upon them. Understood, Lila? And she says, Yes, monitor, yes. And that that's essentially it. Um, deserve and record? I think you mean preserve and yeah, record. Yeah, I had the, the, the same issue. In the very it. next panel, the editor, uh, excuse me, not the editor, but the caption box says, A shift is seen, some 22,000 miles earthward, and blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. I think you meant a shift of scene. Now, it says here a shift is scene, S-E-E-N. No, no, no. I think a shift of scene, S-C-E-N-E. So it's like, it was like the the spell checker broken, or the editor was, just, I mean, what happened here? Was there a smudge on the scripting page, and somebody didn't catch it? It's just really Bad with the with the grammar and the, the spelling and it's it's embarrassing and it's uh ah oh, it, I was just
2: yeah it was, it was a little rough to go through yeah
1: this issue um I just got to be honest the only reason that this book gets a stay of execution from being tossed out of my collection is because it has a pre-crisis monitor appearance in it otherwise. No, I'd be getting rid of this but you know, this this bad boy here cuz it just what what a horrible issue. I mean top to bottom it's bad. Um the only note that I really made beyond those was uh page 23 panel 1. I had never realized before that the co- uh, Flash's costume was made out of taffy. <laughs> But
2: well, there's I, there, there's a lot to kind of pick apart oh. in this issue that that we won't because we just don't have the time. I don't have um,
1: the patience for it, to be honest.
2: So, I mean, I, I I can honestly say that of all the things that we've ever talked about covering, the trial of the Flash was never on that list. So yeah, and Carmine Infantino does not draw a very attractive looking Lila.
1: No, I, I, I'm, I'm serious. I, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, I, it's weird because I respect, you know, these people that worked on this. Mm-hmm. I, I like Carrie Bates, Bates excellent, right? Infantino, but the story is just top to bottom awful. I, I mean, you could literally, you could make an entire series of shows about these couple of issues and just pointing out the the ridiculousness the leaps in logic the just the just flat out friggin wonkiness of the thing and i just don't have the energy for it this is just bad comics i'm sorry i i, I gotta i gotta call it like i see it bad issue and i mean honestly what what were they thinking of taking this guy doofus ratchet and making him into this ridiculous uh you know, like gladiator style supervillain. He it's ooh. Ooh. That's a rough one from, from DC Pass there. Alright, so we're gonna move swiftly on, unless you have anything else on this one, Mike. Not at all. Alright, swiftly on to Batman and the Outsiders number 15. Maxi Zeus requests and gets the aid of the new Olympians from the monitor to use against the the outsiders, and the monitor observes the conflict. This is, again, part two of two back-to-back pre-crisis monitor appearances in Batman and the Outsiders. The monitor's role is uh, page 23, the first two panels, and that's pretty much it. Uh, Lila and the monitor observe Zeus's capture and Lila is concerned that he might betray them. But the monitor assures her that Maxi, while mad as a March hare, has more honor than most and that they are safe. And I think this begs the question, what exactly was Lila afraid might happen if Zeus did betray them? Because isn't word of the monitor already getting around pretty good at this point anyway? I mean, what, could Zeus possibly know that would worry them up there in their hidden satellite? I, I was kind of at a loss as to figure that out. What do you think?
2: Uh, I I I think it's just another example of them having an idea for this monitor character, and that idea completely changing by the time Crisis actually comes, <laughs> down. so that it's it, it's it you know on the face of it it's wildly inconsistent. But that's because they had no information to go on. Right. So they're kind of. It's like, you know, in a couple years, they'll do Legends. And in addition to the Legends miniseries, they also had the crossovers that, you know, chapter one, chapter two. It was actually kind of an interesting way to do the the crossover. But in the first two appearances, uh, which are in the Batman and Detective issues. Glorious Godfrey does not look like, does not look the same in both of those issues, and he doesn't, he really doesn't look like how John Byrne drew him. Mm -hmm. So So, when you don't have as tight of editorial control, or the editorial control is all basically like, here's this mysterious character, and here's his blonde, you know, dumb bunny assistant, go for it and folks you might think Mike that's kind of mean calling her a dumb bunny no that's what Marv Wolfman called her in the memo right so I would have liked to have seen them sneak the monitor into the Flash Force 2000 comic uh, <laughs> that was in the middle of this that would have been that would have been a really kind of interesting thing my only note on this issue is doesn't the gold in the in the story title look like the Booster Gold logo
1: oh let me let me look at that again let's you're right Maybe that's why it looks so familiar to me, because I was looking at that first page thinking that something looks... That you're right. This is,
2: this is like a year and a half before Booster Gold would come out. Right. But still, that's kind of weird.
1: It does, yeah, especially if you ever saw the uh, the promo image uh, that ran in the comics just before Booster came out. Yeah, that definitely looks like uh, the Booster Gold logo. You're right, I hadn't caught oh,
2: that. Oh, And Trevor Von Eden draws an awesome Batman.
1: Uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have to disagree with you because for me, I, I judge this issue's past fail grade, uh, by two factors, Batman driving a cop car versus some of the ridiculous leaps in logical deduction. And the, uh, I have to say it, what I thought was God awful art by Trevor Von Eden, never been a fan, never been a okay. fan of Trevor Von Eden, but that, that's but fair. that's me. But I, I would say I would ultimately end up giving this one a, a pass grade because I, I thought the story was pretty entertaining. And come on, Batman driving a cop car. <laughs> There's something just inherently cool about that. I thought that was neat. Um, I like the uh, Blue Beetle house ad, and uh, I've actually never read the Flash Force 2000 insert, but I, I did make note that it was in there. And you're right. It would have been cool to sneak in a monitor appearance into the Flash <laughs> Force thing. It would have been interesting. <laughs> Next up is Justice League of America, number 232, which might sound kind of familiar because in that one, uh, the Monitor and Lila observe the final encounter between the Commander and the Justice League Justice Society grouping inadvertently distracting the villain enough for the heroes to triumph. If this sounds familiar, well, that's because we just covered it, what, like two episodes ago. So Mm -hmm. go back and listen to that one again. So moving swiftly on, we have Tales of the Legion of Superheroes, which would make a great name for a podcast, wouldn't it? Yes. Number 317.
2: As would Tales of the New Teen Titans.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, it would. Uh, in this one, the Monitor and Lila time travel to the Legion's 30th century to observe Dev M, the ex-knave of Krypton. The Monitor's role in this issue is entirely on page 11. Hiding in the tail of a comet, the Monitor's satellite observes Dev M. The Monitor seems surprised to find another survivor of Krypton, especially in the 30th century, and finds his style more appealing than Superman's or Supergirl's. Also, Lila seems to flirt with the monitor and laments not being allowed to go shopping, further reinforcing the uh, mall stereotype in this one. Now, I just got to say, while this wasn't my favorite issue of this time around, this was my favorite monitor appearance this time around, because uh, I've always kind of been a sucker for DevM and characters like him. And uh, I liked this monitor appearance. I liked the R, and uh, it was just it was, a, it was a more it was just a little bit meatier than the other ones that we got this month, I thought.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I, I have this issue. I just forgot to dig it out, so I went to my digital copy, and it goes from pages seven right to 12.
1: Oh, you know what? Yeah, I, you know, I almost made a note of that, and then I thought maybe it was just my copy, the digital one. Um, so, do you not have a, a complete one of this?
2: I, I have it. I have a printed issue in my collection. Oh,
1: okay. All right, because I was, uh, I, I was going to make note of that, and like I say, I thought maybe it was just my copy was damaged. But yeah, folks, um, if you have a, a digital copy of this that is coverless then your issue is not complete. And I, I discovered that myself when I loaded it up on my iPad. Because um, while I have been digging out the paper issues for this, when we actually sit down to record, when I initially read them, I've been reading them off the iPad because it's just more convenient. I can take it to work with me and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I noticed the same thing that you did, that there are several pages that are missing from, the, from that particular Uh, digital copy so just be aware of that people because this page in particular the monitor appearance page number 11 is not in that digital copy because that's how I realized that mine was missing pages because I kept flipping through it going where the hell is the monitor in this thing so I went and grabbed the paper issue and then that's where I found that uh, the missing page was in there so thank you for pointing that out I had forgotten to make a note of that myself What, what did you have on this one
2: uh it it was interesting issue. Uh I really wasn't a fan of the backup uh which I also read, but no, it, I I am slowly starting to get to know this era of the Legion. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't want to I, I will admit that I didn't read it too closely because I want to come to it when I've been reading it like as part of the entire run. Right. Basically. But uh it, you know to to hear to hear the monitor appearance, that actually sounds kind of cool.
1: <laughs> I wish that I had the time in life to to seriously like get into doing the Legion in you know some form of podcasting because you know right up there with with the Justice Society, I love the Legion. And reading this issue, while the the issue itself didn't particularly stand out either you know on this reading or in my memory, just just this era of legion picking up this issue and and reading it and i and i read it cover to covers uh, except for the uh flash force thing it was just you know it was like visiting an old friend uh, it really was it just gave me the warm fuzzies i i love the legion especially from this particular era although it was twinged with a bit of sadness because a, a lot of these characters particularly you know this guy dev m uh, you know, about to go a radical change because post crisis, Dev M, while he would continue to exist, would no longer be a, a Kryptonian because that was the the edict. Yeah, he's a he's a Daxamite. Yeah, that you know, because after a bad guy, yeah, after um, Burns Man of Steel, you know, the the new edict was you know Superman sole survivor, so they had to uh, they had to change up Dev M, which uh, I, I I consider that one uh, a real shame because I, I liked. That character, although as I recall, not a hell of a lot was ever really done with him. He was one of those characters with with a lot of potential that never really went anywhere. Kind of like, kinda like uh, say, like uh, Laurel Kent or something. But still, I, I still got a soft spot for characters like that. You know, regardless, well, that's pretty much all I had on this one. Uh, I really uh, I, I liked this. I liked this issue, and I, I liked this particular uh, monitor appearance. I like the idea of him hiding his ship. In the, in the Tale of a Comet. It wasn't really necessary if it's a cloaked ship, but still, a, you know, it's an interesting visual. I thought that was kind of cool. All right, next one up is Wonder Woman number 321. Nah. The Monitor observes the Huntress, wonders why she faces trial after trial without superpowers, and repeatedly refuses aid or friendship. Lila uh, replies to herself, that the Huntress obviously values her independence and freedom. The Monitor's role, now, this is all in the last page of the backup feature. So the Monitor appearance, there's actually two stories in here. There's Wonder Woman proper, because it's her title, and then the Huntress is a backup feature. So the the Monitor is in the backup feature, last page. And it is pretty much exactly as summarized uh, as what I just read. I really don't have anything to add to that. Um I will point out that I did not read the Wonder Woman feature at all because I knew the monitor wasn't in it ahead of time when I cracked the issue open. I understand that wasn't the uh, the case with you, Mike. No, I,
2: I read the, the, the Wonder Woman story, and this is not what I would call a stellar chapter in the life of Wonder Woman. Uh, Dr. Cyber is not a villain that I really feel anything for. And uh, I, I think we've discussed in the past that Don Heck is uh, decent when handled by certain inkers, and uh, this isn't one of them. The Huntress story, however, was kind of interesting. This is the last Huntress backup. Yes. Um, that was in Wonder Woman, and it kind of hints at the end that maybe you'll see her in her own uh, title. Uh, just to tell you, don't get your hopes up. Yeah, it's not gonna
1: happen. that never happens.
2: But... This is one of the more shoehorned monitor appearances. Yeah. You're a woman, Lila. Maybe you understand her. What does she hope to gain? Really? (laughs) Okay, you, Mr. Joey Cavalieri, who will not insult the man, creator of Marvel 2099, uh, edited the Superman books in the the mid-90s, have nothing against the man on a personal level, but his writing in this time period is not because it was... He he wrote this, and then he wrote the Green Arrow back up mm-hmm. in Detective Comics, and that was awful. Yeah. On, on the whole, so... Uh, as a monitor appearance, I will rate it not the best.
1: Yeah, I, I will agree with you. Yeah, I, it it really didn't do much of anything for me either, other than it you know it further illustrates that uh you know the monitor and lila they're getting around they're going you know i mean it, this month in particular're around yeah they're oh, everywhere yeah. <laughs> you know they're they're in they're in earth two past you know earth 2 present they're in the legion of the thirtieth century they're they're literally all over the place in this which i i think that's cool i think that's uh you know they're they're showing the full range here. Uh, let's see. Next one up would be uh, Infinity, Inc., number 8. Now, in, course, in case you have uh, short-term memory loss, uh, restart this episode and seek immediate medical attention because we just <laughs> talked about this issue. And uh, I'm not going to say anything more about it because I think we covered all of that.
2: Seek, seek
1: immediate medical attention if this something happens for four hours <laughs> to <laughs> So last one for this month, we have Saga of the Swamp Thing, number 30. Lured by the incredible flux of mystic power, the Monitor and Lila watch the climactic battle between Swamp Thing and Arcane, though tempted to look away. This is part one of two back-to-back pre-crisis Monitor appearances in Saga of the Swamp Thing. The Monitor's role is on page 12, and uh, in the first of two appearances of Saga the Swamp Thing, Lila brings Arcane's Rampage to the Monitor's attention, asking what they should do, to which the Monitor replies, We watch. That's pretty much it. Doesn't sound all that exciting, right? But uh, I, I just got to say, you know, it's been so long so long since i've read this series but it was so wonderful to discover that man this holds up just as well as i remember great issue great mm-hmm. story while this was not my favorite monitor appearance of the month this was most definitely my favorite read of the month to a point that uh i i have got got to find the time to uh, do a reread of uh, of uh, Alan Moore's uh, Swamp Thing, at least through Crisis, which seems like a silly thing to say because we will cover a lot of those issues. But, you know, of course, not every single issue is a Crisis-related uh, issue. But this just wet my appetite to where I really want to reread this because, uh, spoiler, minor spoiler, but so we have this issue, right, which is 30. Then we have next issue, 31. It's going to end up uh, on a cliffhanger that we won't go back to. We will come back to Saga the Swamp Thing during the crisis. But in the interim, 31 leads directly into Saga the Swamp Thing annual number 2, I believe. Pretty sure it's number 2. Which is one of the great 1980s comics. That's all, I, that's all I'm prepared to say about it because I don't want to spoil a thing. But it is a great issue that resolves the storyline that starts here with the death of a major character. So I'm pretty sure you haven't ever read it, Mike. Did this whet your appetite to maybe want to read more? I mean, I've
2: read like the first
1: trade paperback of Moore's run on Swamp Thing and I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: What I was surprised the most is because my feelings on Alan Moore have been kind of complicated. Right. This would be the best way to say that over the last, you know, ten or so years. There was a reason he was popular. And that's because at this time especially he was like at the height of his game. And he drags you into the story and he does disturbing things. And there are there's some really disturbing imagery within the book, but I am more horrified by the kids putting the animal in the microwave or the guy that's gonna light the lino on fire. Or the woman that kills her husband. I mean, that's that's the true horror. I, I watched an interview once. It was a really great interview with uh, Bernie Wrightson uh, for this thing called uh, Comic Book Masters or something like that. It was a video that came out in the mid-'80s that was hosted by Harlan Ellison. Is
1: that the Great yeah, comic, it, comic Book Masters or something? Yes, the Great Comic Book Masters. It, it, it had movie. like a Miller Batman on the cover of it? Uh, yeah, like they interviewed Miller, they interviewed Jack Kirby.
2: I have the video. Yeah,
1: I was there. just gonna say, I th- send this out. I think I still have my copy of that too, because uh, I'm sorry, I'm walking all over you here, but it just you, you you struck on a on a sweet memory of mine because I was working for Saturday Matinee at the time that that video came out, and it sat on the shelf for months. Priced at like I think it was like twenty nine ninety five. It was expensive, but I finally saved yeah. up and, and ended up buying that. And uh, yeah, somewhere I, I'm pretty sure I still have that.
2: Yeah, it's the video where you know it kind of proves what a jackass Dave Sim is, just in general. But uh, <laughs> I mean, anybody in the '80s that used the word copacetic pretty much pisses me off <laughs> on a general uh, on a general basis. But Bernie Wrightson, it's this really great interview with him where he goes, "Horror to me," he said is a perfectly dressed gentleman, you know, like in a very nice suit but there's a little bit of blood on his shoe. And that is what Moore does balances here. He has the horrific, arcane demon-looking artwork you know, by Tottlebum and Bessette, but it's the people doing horrific things that are the really scary thing and that's what really grabbed me about this issue. And, and his... His writing at this time was really hypnotic. It, I, I don't know why it's not the same way in Watchmen. Watchmen is engaging, but not like this is. Right. You know? You know, this... It, it's almost like you're entering a haze. Uh, it, it's kind of like when I first read Interview with a Vampire and I felt like I was drunk the entire time.
1: I know exactly the feeling you're talking about. This is, uh, this is that feeling... I'm trying to remember who I was just talking to about this not long ago... Maybe Chris Honeywell, I forget. But, uh, you know, those movies that you would watch as a kid, or maybe if you ever did this, I I don't know. Let me see if I can explain. There were certain movies I can remember watching as a kid that you would watch, like, really late at night. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of dozed in and out while the movie was playing, it almost lent into the enjoyment of the movie. I'm talking movies that are that are kind of dark anyway like uh i remember tron being a perfect example of that tron is one of those movies just by the way it's made that if you watch that movie at like three o'clock in the morning and maybe fell asleep somewhere in the middle of it it, it, it somehow you just roll with it and you keep going that's exactly the same kind of weird dreamlike feeling i get reading these old swamp thing issues is you are in that weird, hazy, like, middle ground. Even wide awake, it gives you that, that feeling. And I think it's because of the art. The art has a very wispy, dreamlike quality to it that just adds into the whole mood.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's just... it. it, it I see why this book was popular. You know, sometimes you read something from the past... Mm-hmm. And you're like, why the hell did people like this? Right. You know, you realize it had its fans, and you realize that you have that as well in your own collecting history. You know, there were things where, where you read it, and people, like, 10 years, tw- 15, 20 years later, go, why did you like that? Right. Because it was the time. It was. It touched you at a certain point. But certain books become kind of timeless. And I think... Moore's Swamp Thing is one of those books, but it's the exception for me with Moore that proves the rule. It's like this proves that he's a good writer but I don't like a whole lot of what he's written, if that makes any sense.
1: It, it does because see, the, the thing, you know it's funny, like you say, the, the thing with Alan Moore, it, it can be very complicated because I defend the guy but I defend them largely because of this series. Because I enjoyed this very much. This, this is one of those uh, you know seminal pieces of my comic book childhood. I grew up with this and, and became a, a comics fan through this era. And this, to me, is one of the great 1980s reads and, and comics was Moore's run on Swamp Thing. And so because I hold this to such a high regard, it has such a, a a spot in my memory and in my heart as a comics fan, I will largely give him a pass on a lot of the stuff that came along later. Now a lot of that stuff I haven't even read because he did change at some point. And I think what happened is the same thing I've seen to happen. you know, that's happened to other uh comic book personalities uh probably the, the the biggest one being grant morrison is at some point they crossed the line from a, a, a damn good writer into they bought their own hype and now they've become something entirely different and mm-hmm. that happened to more i think it's a shame that with more it seems to be just a a sense of uh I am really good, maybe too good for this medium, which I think is a shame because I think he's perfect or was anyway, perfect for the medium. It's a shame that he got kind of full of himself. The other guy, I, I'm I'm not so sure. I have my opinions, but I'll keep them to myself in this instance. But you know, talking strictly about more, I, I think that's really what happened to him. It it seems to me very similar to what happened with Byrne there for a time back, this had to be late 80s, early 90s, where he got kind of full of himself and he made that big announcement about getting out of the trenches. That is where I personally point to as the beginning beginning of the fall of John Byrne is when he got kind of pretentious about his own talent and the fact that, oh, I'm too good to work on regular comics. I think something very similar happened to Alan Moore and it's a damn shame because it's kind of tarnished and, and, and destroyed a lot of the goodwill that he created with such a, a phenomenal run on this book.
2: I think with Moore, uh, this is going to sound really strange, so go with me on this. <laughs> Moore, it was a combination of that and the cult of personality that cropped up around him. Mm-hmm. It's like, to me, I don't so much mind Alan Moore as I don't like the people that are trying to convince me that Alan Moore is the greatest thing since, you know, cave paintings. And because I don't see the brilliance in everything he does, suddenly I'm the asshole, you know? Like, I'm the guy, I'm missing out on something. I'm too stupid to see it, and I think that bugs me more than anything, but more more sabotage is, sabotage is himself a lot of the time, too. I agree. Because because when you hear him in interviews, you're absolutely right. There is that kind of too-cool-for-school type of, you know, well, you know, these things are silly, and, you know, I'm going to go, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm tired of dealing in these things. Well, Alan, you know you've done some great things, you did some great things from Swamp Thing, but the majority of your career has been you doing pastiches of other people's creations. So don't sit there and tell me that you're this great creator when all you're doing is recycling old ideas in an interesting way, you know? so With the exception of Swamp Thing, which I think he broke new ground with.
1: He he, he did. Well, it's funny, I was going to say that, you know, here here's his... You know, to me this is his defining work. He he has other works that are awesome. He has other works that I like as much, possibly even more, because I really think very highly of uh V for Vendetta in a way that I don't think of when it comes to Watchmen. I, I think Watchmen has a very inflated um Legend or, or or reputation about it that I just don't think it quite deserves. But that that's neither here nor there. But when it comes to Swamp Thing, definitely do. But it's funny. You know, a while back when that when I first heard that argument, that all more you know Alan Moore does is take other people's works and and work within them you know for 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 good or bad. I kind of scoffed at it. I was like, well, what about Swamp Thing? And then I had to stop myself going, wait a minute. No, you're right. Cause this is somebody else's creation as well. But the difference here is, is that he didn't just recycle what had come before. He basically took what had come before and completely turned it on its ear. And in a lot of ways explained what had come before. I thought in a, in a, in a brilliant way that, you know, because it seemed like every single issue and appearance of swamp thing until moore came along had to make a a mention of the fact that this was a a, a muck encrusted you know reanimated man and -hmm. moore comes along and says you know what he was never a man at all and it's like wow you know it, it turned the whole concept right on its ear and
2: uh yeah and and i'll and i'll totally agree with that and, uh, and, I, and like I said this is, that's why I say this is the exception that proves the rule mm-hmm. is that in this instance or in the case of Miracle Man where he used somebody else's creation to kind of deconstruct superheroes in a new and kind of interesting way at the same time though uh, it was his later work that I actually kind of have issues with Right. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but
1: no, I I, uh, I think I follow you.
2: So I you know again this isn't this isn't turning into the Mike Bash's you know Alan Moore show uh, because that's definitely not what I'm going for. I just I just find it interesting that for for someone like myself that has been fairly critical of the man and his work to find something that I just really glom onto was kind of surprising.
1: Well, I'm going to make sure that you get a copy of uh, Annual 2, which, which, like I say, is the direct continuation of these two monitor appearances. And uh, if you get the time to read them uh, in the next little while, I'll be very curious for your reaction. Because knowing you like I think you do and, and your likes and interests in comics, particularly DC Comics... I'm going to go go out on a limb and say that I think you'll really dig it. Because it's essentially, it's in this same vein, of course, of of Moore and and this horrific thing that he's got going. But it's essentially Swamp Thing putting together a band of DC uh, magical and mystical characters and going into hell to accomplish his mission. And it's good stuff. Really good stuff. Sounds like it. So impressive that uh, that even Chris Honeywell holds it up as uh, as a great, you know, comic from this time. Which uh, you know that's that's high praise for him because uh, he was uh, very particular in his comics back in this time. So really, yeah. Well, you know, it was it was Chris. You know, as we were kids and and reading comics, you know, I was reading you know all the mainstream stuff, and it was Chris that was off, off on the fringes reading. Well, not that Thor, you know, Simonson Thor is necessarily considered the fringes today, but back then it kind of was. So he was reading, you know, X-Men and, and Simonson and Thor and, you know, more Swamp Thing and a lot of independent and, uh, you know, Will Eisner spirit and just, you know, n- not really like the, the uh, mainstream things you think of when you think of, you know, 1983 and 4 and i can remember him uh him really getting into this particular comic because i think of the uh the very edgy style that it had back then i don't you know that's the funny thing i don't know that that edginess still holds up or still feels that way now um but i mean there's a reason why this title uh begat the whole um Vertigo imprint, you know, just it was because of that feel and and the direction that they were trying to go with it. You know, telling more—I don't want to say adult type stuff, but just more—I um, don't know—it was on a deeper level than than some of the mainstream. So it was in a different world than the mainstream stuff tend to live in, if you know what I mean.
2: Well, it's like you know, say say what you will about. Uh... Marvel in the, in the 80s uh, being better than DC, uh, and that argument is made a lot that, you know, Marvel had the, the better, you know, you know the, they were more dynamic and they were more popular and all this stuff, I was listening to an interview with Joe Quesada uh, where he was talking about his early days of being, you know, an artist, you know, how he broke into the industry And, you know, he got back into comics during Dark Knight because, well, everyone got into Batman during Dark Knight, apparently, if you were reading comics at that time. And, from his perspective, Marvel had good art, but DC had better stories. And I think, especially this particular era of DC Comics, the stories were just getting better and better and better. And, you know, I... I, I have a weird kind of nostalgia for this era of DC because I wasn't part of it. I wasn't, you know, it, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really read the books at this time, and uh, you know, I wasn't collecting yet. And yet, it still kind of feels like home to me in a very strange way. So that's why reading through these uh, Crisis issues have been such has been such a f- ball because. I've just I've just enjoyed myself so much in reconnecting with uh, with what I love about the DC universe. And don't get me wrong, I love Marvel. Uh, there are plenty of Marvel characters I love, uh, you know, especially especially if you were a Marvel character drawn by John Byrne. I was probably predisposed to really like your that particular run on a book. But uh, DC is where my heart is, so it's just mm-hmm. great to to kind of. Get these glimpses, like I said last time, of, of DC
1: at this time period. I agree. I agree, absolutely. Well, do we have anything more uh, this time around? You want to wrap this sucker up? I think we're good there.
2: Uh, we're, we're, I think the Swamp Thing issues have been reprinted in trade paperback form.
1: Almost positive, yes. <laughs> Just a hunch.
2: Woman's intuition, whatever you want to call it. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the
1: Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.2TrueFreaks.com.
2: There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek
1: Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally, Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailey2.com.
2: Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you! So you can reach the guys
1: by writing to JSA at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks Network shows? Simply head on over to www.2TrueFreaks.com, click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this
2: show and the Two True Freaks network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase,
1: and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America.